Hi, and welcome to Walk Talk, a podcast courtesy of the Wound, Ostomy, and Continence Nurses Society. Walk Talk is your opportunity to learn more about advocacy, education, and research that support the practice and delivery of expert healthcare to individuals with wound, ostomy, and continence care needs. Please visit wocn.org slash podcast to subscribe and make sure you never miss an episode. Now, here's your host, Jody Scardillo. On this week's edition of Walk Talk, we sit down with Dr. Madeline Cafaro to talk about health literacy as it relates to WOC nursing practice. Dr. Cafaro has 45 years of nursing experience in a variety of settings. She began working in continence care as a nurse practitioner in 1997 and has been certified as a CWOCN since 2005. Her WOC nursing practice includes outpatient clinic, long-term care consulting, and home care visits. Her area of expertise is incontinence management and related skin issues, including pressure injuries in an advanced practice nursing role. She is a board-certified family nurse practitioner and serves as a peer reviewer for the Journal of Woundostomy Continence Nursing in Continence Content. Dr. Cafaro achieved a doctorate in education from Teachers College, Columbia University in 2012. Her doctoral dissertation focused on health literacy and nurse practitioner practice. She developed the instrument, Health Literacy Strategies Behavioral Intention Questionnaire, which has been used by researchers nationally and internationally to measure the intention to use health literacy strategies strategies in clinical practice. Thanks so much for joining me, Madeline. I'm excited to talk to you today about your work on health literacy. I am so happy to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm delighted you're here. So first of all, tell our listeners about your nursing and your WOC background. Well, I tell my students I've been a nurse since the dinosaurs roamed. I'm kind of one of the original diploma school nurses. I graduated in 1976. You can do the math. And I did the requisite year in one year in mid-surge nights. And then I worked in critical care and ER for about 10 years. It's allergy season in the Northeast. During that time, I obtained my bachelor's and I moved to the Capital District in 1983. I'm originally from New York City. So I worked um, in a variety of settings, CCU, then home care, home infusion, long-term care for the next 10 years. In 96, I obtained my master's degree and became a family nurse practitioner. And that's when I first was introduced to WSC nursing. My first MP job was in a nurse practitioner-run incontinence treatment center. And initially, this was an office-based practice, but we reached out to long-term care facilities to treat their residents with urinary incontinence. And we found a need for wound care consulting as well. So in 2005, I started there in 1998 but I was quite busy in the long-term care setting. In 2004, I decided that I wanted to be able to provide wound care, pressure ulcer uh, prevention programs, kind of expand my practice. So I attended the Emory program and I became a Dodiite, graduating in 2005. So from there, I stayed with that practice and we expanded the office practice to continence, ostomy, and wound care, inpatient, outpatient, home care. I can sometimes be a restless soul. So in 2008, I decided to go back to school for my doctorate and teach at the graduate level. So there's a lot more in between, but those are the cliff notes for the 45-year journey so far. So for your doctoral work, you did a lot of work in the area of health literacy. So I wonder if you would tell us how you came to be interested and how you came to work on that project. 
so in my doctoral work, I was a real magpie when it came to choosing a dissertation topic. I liked everything. And so I went picking up shiny things every semester. <laughs> and uh, the program was a uh, EDD, terminal degree. So I wanted to combine my clinical experience as well as my new role as an educator. And I attended a visiting scholar event at St. Peter's Hospital in 2009. And it was someone from Pfizer, and I wish I could remember her name, but the speaker was a nurse and she was talking about the Pfizer Clear Communication Program. And I had this aha moment. I thought, oh my goodness, all these years of failed attempts at patient teaching, being the family nurse translator, seeing non-adherence to treatment plans in all spheres of the scope, in wound care, incontinence, in ostomy care. And now I had something to call one of those causative factors, and that was low health literacy. And it was something that I could address. What's the definition that you use and were using for this project on health literacy, in case maybe our listeners aren't really familiar with what that means? I know I wasn't until I started reading some things to prepare to chat with you. So I don't really define it, but there are agencies that do, and there's a few definitions, and I'm going to just go through them quickly because each one has the same thread, but then there are different spins. So AHRQ uses the original definition, and that's the health literacy is the degree to which individuals have the capacity to obtain, process, and understand basic health information needed to make appropriate decisions. Now, the CDC changed their definition in August of 2020, and they broke it out into two types of health literacy, which I think is really important for us as WOC nurses, because many of us are involved with policy development. We're, uh, many people in the WOC society are national influencers when it comes to policy. So the CDC in August decided that they would break it out into two. And so personal health literacy, um, individual, is the degree to which individuals have the ability to find, understand, and then they put the word use information. They're saying the degree to which individuals have the ability to find, understand, and use. And that's really the most important word, right? You can do a search on Dr. Google, <laughs> but what do you do with the information? So CDC added use, information, and services to inform health-related decisions and actions for themselves and others. And later on in our talk, I'll just mention a few studies that people have done in the WOC community with caregivers. We have an aging population, we have many caregivers, and, and they need to be health literate as well. And then organizational health literacy, which Cindy Brock was very influential in building this document, this white paper. Organizational health literacy is the degree to which organizations equitably enable individuals to find, understand, and use information and services to inform health-related decisions and actions for themselves and others. So again, for WOC nurses, what is your organization doing? And what is our organization doing to equitably enable individuals, and we're going to talk a little bit about that digital divide too, to help people find, understand, and use information and services, especially since we're a small group, relatively small group. How do we best help the population that we serve in a way that they can actually access information? And then 
I like the WHO definition. That's the last one I'm going to discuss. And that's the World Health Organization says it's the ability of individuals to gain access to, understand, and use information in ways which promote and maintain good health for themselves, their families, and their communities. So WHO really takes a larger view as far as the community. And I love that they talk about empowerment. They say by improving people's access to health information and their capacity to use it effectively, health literacy is critical to empowerment. And I think, again, with our population that we serve as WSC nurses, that's what we want, right? We want our patients to be empowered, to self-care, to manage their conditions, and to have a good quality of life. So the empowerment piece is so important. I always thought it was literacy, health literacy was about comprehension, but it's really way more than that. It's about how to act once you comprehend. Exactly. And when you look back at all the patients that you've taken care of, at least when I did, (laughs) many times I was not explaining things and they were not incorporating what I was telling them in a way that they could use. That makes me think of the ostomy patient who's like maybe has a cancer diagnosis, is post-op, it doesn't feel well. We want them to understand what's wrong with them. We want them to do the physical care, and then we want them to troubleshoot. And I'm thinking that's a tall order for us to expect people to really do that. And patients do a great job, but that's really a lot when you think about it in terms of health literacy, don't you think? Yes, and the complexity. Our patients are very complex. I did a lot of work with spinal cord injured patients when I was working at the Incontinence Treatment Center and the emotional resources, you have to look at that as well. Now, your study showed that the NP population that you studied, which was, I think, a pretty large group of family nurse practitioners, had some knowledge about literacy. They had intention to use literacy strategies, but actually didn't really implement many strategies in practice. Were you surprised by that? <laughs> no. <laughs> I have a, no, that, this, that's a big no. But specialty nurses did better as far as using a variety of strategies to teach their patients. So again, that's kind of, this study was done back in 2012. I can't even believe it's 2021 already. And I published in 2013. That was one thing that really made me think, oh, I should probably replicate this study with WOC nurses and see where are we at as a group. Was I surprised? No. Unfortunately, we've been talking about this in uh, healthcare since 2001, (laughs) 2002, something like that. Not much has been done to change that. And part of it is family nurse practitioners have such a broad generalist practice that they really have to rely on what are the resources they have available to them. And what we know is that we should be providing resources, educational resources to patients in a variety of ways, but our written materials should definitely be fifth grade or less as far as reading levels. And that's just one piece of it. I'd really like to talk more about that in a few minutes. But basically, you've got a lot of material that's readily available. And here it is. (laughs) And our 15 minutes are up. And we'll see you call if you have any problems. (laughs) If you read it, right? (laughs) Yeah, if it doesn't go into the trash can on the way to the parking lot. And so what are some clues that you've seen throughout your practice that we as clinicians might want to 
look for to identify low literacy as we work with people? Like sometimes it's not that obvious, I think. There's actually a video that I don't remember who produced it, but it says you can't tell by looking. So that's very true. And that's why we talk about universal precautions now for health literacy strategies. But there are factors that impact people's health literacy. So low health literacy is more prevalent in older adults, in minority populations, people in low socioeconomic status, medically underserved folks. But education level and uh, socioeconomic status is not protective. So I'll give you a little vignette about when I was working in the Incontinence Treatment Center and we changed it to specialty services. So I was seeing a patient with venous stasis ulcers, chronic venous stasis ulcers, and he was a professor. In fact, he was a real rocket scientist. <laughs> and he taught over in one of the local colleges, this very, very esoteric and detailed and smart people science. And I kept seeing him for these leg ulcers. And finally, I just said to him, just tell me what you're doing at home with your legs. And he was basically uh, leaving them open to air <laughs> with no, no compression stockings, nothing. So much for moist wound healing. <laughs> and so much for a man who was extremely smart, middle class, upper middle class, and had science behind him, could not understand, you know, until I started speaking his language. We talked a little bit about can the factors change over time when, before we got onto the podcast, and it depends on the circumstance. Anyone may struggle with health information, and I think that brings us back to those folks, the ostomy patients that you see in your GI clinic that are so overwhelmed, especially, you know, if you think about like ulcerative colitis, these people are at a developmental age, usually, you know, young adults trying to start their adult lives, thinking about their sexual relationships, their careers, they're exhausted. <laughs> Many of them are have been battling this for quite some time. And then, you know, you're giving them information about a surgery if they are not clear about their anatomy, even though they've been dealing with this for so long and they're so anxious and so tired, it's difficult. So you mentioned about, and we, I think we all know this about fifth grade reading level. If I'm like a WOC nurse and I'm either developing patient ed materials or I'm looking at something that maybe is already in existence, how do I really tell if it is appropriate? I wish it was so easy to just look at a document. <laughs> I want to um, backtrack, though, to the um, clues. So there's a couple of more clues I want to talk about with health literacy, red flags. So even though we know that you just can't tell by looking, there are red flags. So think low health literacy when a patient frequently misses appointments, has incomplete registration forms, they're non-compliant with medications or non-adherent, as I like to say. They can't name their medicines. They identify pills by looking at them. And I think all of us know about, you know, oh, that's the blue pill. <laughs> oh, it's the yellow pill. They can't give a coherent sequential history. But, you know, that may be cultural, too. Don't hang your hat on that one. Usually they ask fewer questions and they do a lot of nodding. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. They don't follow through on tests or referrals. So those are the clues that kind of give you. And then I think the last one that I didn't find in the literature, but I think we should remember, is if a patient is very defensive and hostile and angry, when you're asking them questions about their history, that might cause us to take a step back. How do they understand what you're asking them? Okay, so patient and materials. 
when I went through the lit review, I found an article from 2003 that was published in the WOCN journal on assessing the readability of materials for patient education. 2003 now. And they found it was eighth grade. You can't just go by grade level, although that's a good start. And the Joint Commission says that patient and materials should be written at or below fifth grade reading level. And they encourage hospitals to use readability tests to revise written materials. Okay, so how do you do that? So the first and easy way to do that is Word, Microsoft Word, has a program embedded in the document. So what you do is you go to File, and you go to Options, and you select Proofing. And then there's a little checkbox for show readability statistics. But you can't always go just by the reading level. So SMOG, which I love this acronym for Simple Measure of Gobbledygook. So SMOG has a readability formula and there's an online calculator. So you can just go on, search for the SMOG online calculator, and you can cut and paste a couple of paragraphs from your document and it will tell you what the measure is and what the measure should be for low literacy folks. Harvard School of Public Health has also some health literacy materials for that. And the CDC, which I recommend people, just if they're having trouble communicating with a patient, pull up the everyday words for public health communication and find the words that will make sense to the patient. So when we say abdomen, do we want to say belly? Do we want to say tummy? (laughs) What do we want to say that's going to make sense to the patient? And Really, you should, if you can, use a focus group to test your materials after you vet them. Materials, not the group. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So that focus group would be other nurses or other patients? No, the patients. You work in a GI clinic, so I would suggest if you're going to redo your ileostomy material, say, for your ulcerative colitis, people who live with ulcerative colitis, you might want to pick some patients out and say, hey, I'm redoing the patient education materials and I wonder if you could look it over for me and mark it up. And the patients really would be the best people and and that's the group. So even if you took five folks in their 20s or 30s and you had a document on the procedure that you commonly do over in your clinic might be helpful. So I talked a little bit about plain language. Cliff Coleman is a physician out in Oregon, and he teaches medical students. And he said to me, he finds the medical students if they use medical jargon during their OSCE, which is their observed experience. He finds them 25 cents for each medical jargon word they use. And then I think he puts it in the coffee fund for all the students. So... I think plain language is really important. I've heard from nurses that they are worried that they're dumbing down to the patient. That has been proven not true. They actually have done studies where they've talked to people where plain language was used with all different types of folks and the people who were well-educated, who were perhaps professionals, were just as happy to get plain language as the people who didn't understand, who maybe were in those underserved groups that we talked about. So don't be afraid that you're going to dumb down to them. It's best to use plain language. And chunk and check. That's the other thing. Chunk three topics and then check with the patient. Oh, I never heard that before either. So as you're reviewing something with somebody, do three areas and then stop and ask. How are you doing with this information? What questions do you have? That's the other thing. Always frame it that you expect questions. 
What questions do you have? So what's interesting, they, had, they did a PSA from the CDC about this. <laughs> Very comical. Somebody buying a phone. They go into the Verizon store and they have a million questions about the phone, about the plan, about all these things, the speed. And then the next scene is they're in the doctor's office on the exam table and the doctor says, do you have any questions? And the person says, no, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> so what questions do you have? And then sometimes what I say to patients, if they tell me they don't have any questions, I say, okay, and this is kind of a teach back strategy, but I say to them, what are you going to tell your wife, your daughter, your partner about this appointment when they ask what happened? I want them to tell me what they're going to tell their loved one or their family. That's a good way to figure out what they've missed from what you've said. Exactly. And how they understand it. As far as identifying people with low health literacy, as I said, we want to use universal precautions, but there are a couple of questions that have been studied you know, there's lots and lots of instruments out there and you don't want to be trying to figure it out. But how often do you need someone to help you when you read instructions or medical information? And then the other question, which I think the is become more well accepted in the medical communities anyway, is how confident are you filling out medical forms by yourself? So Chu did this back in 2004, <laughs> studied this single question and found it comparable to all those long, long instruments that we had in the past. Now, the newest vital sign, which I mentioned before with Dr. Weiss, you could certainly use that. And I know Kathy Daly uses it with her congestive heart failure population over at St. Peter's. It's a nutrition label. So if you're trying to figure out numeracy, like if you're a diabetic educator and you're trying to make sure that people understand what you're talking about with numbers and units and things like that. The newest vital sign is well studied and is a valid instrument. So that's something to think about if you have somebody that where numeracy is pretty critical. So what about like now we're in an audio, video, YouTube, Google everything for information age. TikTok, TikTok. I have to embrace that. I don't know much about that one yet. Tell me about all of that relative to health literacy, because that is included, I'm assuming. It is. Yeah, I did a little search, and I'm looking for the information. I'm not quite sure where I found it. You know, I'm pretty overwhelmed with news feeds and things like that, journals. I get a lot of email newsletters, but basically what I read was YouTube is working with health providers to make sure that the information that's being published has a way of being vetted. And I'm not sure how they're gonna do that, but we certainly need to do that. Since the pandemic, there's been a lot of social media information out there on all different topics. Health ed TikToks. I think we need to understand that if we don't publish and we don't, and I'm saying we as in nurses and especially WOC nurses, if we're not going to publish that information out there, then someone else will. Those are the kind of things that we have to remember. There is a way of vetting online sites for low health literacy folks. I was looking for it last night. I used to do an assignment with the students where they would have to go in and evaluate the website for accessibility and literacy. So yeah, there is a way to do it. Is it done? I'm not sure. 
patients seem to find their way to that, especially YouTube. I've had a lot of new patients who are like, oh yeah, I watched this guy on YouTube changing his appliance. It doesn't look that hard. That's great. But I think we have to find a way of vetting these things. I think the best way would be maybe to steer them to the vendors. So if you have a patient who's using a Convitec appliance, I haven't looked at their resources, but certainly you could look at the resources and then say to the patient, here, this is great resource for you. It's video. The same with like the UOAA and Crohn's and Colitis Foundation too. I think we as providers have to look at the information too, so we know what our patients are seeing. Absolutely. But there is a way to look at accessibility online sites, looking at font, looking at how many clicks, looking at the reading level of the text that's in there, how much text, what do the pictures look like? I mean, sometimes the pictures, people think that pictures are great for patients, but sometimes they do more damage than than they help. So I read somewhere that only 12% of United States adults are considered proficient in health literacy. And so it's not like you alluded to, there's different scales that measure that. So a pretty good percent had like a moderate amount and pretty good percent had an expert, so to speak, but only 12% were proficient. That's pretty low. Or do you think that's a realistic number based on your experience? I do. I think that that information came from the study of the National Study of Adult Literacy, and they did look at both literacy and health literacy. I do, but that information is from 2003. I think we have to think about, again, universal precautions. How can we just assume that no one knows what we're talking about? (laughs) That we speak a different language, and how can we help them so that we come to a consensus. And I think nurses are really good at talking to the patient, but I think we need to start there. Talk to the patient. And the sweet spot for me is that it includes culture, language, and health literacy. It's not just about the language line. It's not just about being culturally competent, which we can never be. (laughs) And it's not just about reading level. I often start, and this was something that I learned in the emergency room way back when I was a very young child. Ask the patient, what do they do? Ask their occupation. What's their life been like? Starting out that way will give you their lens. And then you can move on to how are you going to present this information in a way that's going to match with their worldview? And how can you dispel any misperceptions of what you're saying? I think in answer to your question, yes, I think it's right. I think probably half the people really have low health literacy and the other half don't quite understand what we're saying either. One of the things I want to make sure that we tell the listeners is that there's different types of health of literacy as well. Health literacy, there's really levels and there's also types. So oral health literacy, they're able to speak and listen. Information literacy, they're able to find and apply the health information. Print, can they read? Can they write? So that's where the reading level comes in. Digital, can they use devices and numeracy, which we talked about. So here's some, a kind of fun thing that I found about digital literacy, and that is, they call it e-health literacy. So e-health literacy is defined as the ability to seek, find, understand, and appraise health information from electronic sources. So that's what you were getting at, Jody, with the YouTube and such. And apply the knowledge gained to address or solve a health problem. So e-health literacy combines literacy skills and applies them to e-health. And at its heart is all of those 
types that I just talked about, traditional literacy, health literacy, information literacy. So here's some examples. These are kind, you might recognize some of your friends in these examples. So there's a digital divide, as I mentioned before, between device and internet access. You know, 80% of folks have smartphones, but that doesn't mean that they are using them <laughs> to the best advantage. So this is example one, a nurse practitioner bought her daughter a laptop and when she came home, she found her daughter writing her school essay on her smartphone. So the kid was not comfortable with a desktop or a laptop computer. A PhD scientist calls his 12-year-old grandson for tech support to create a group video call. And a Medicaid patient refuses a video visit because she thought forgetting her password meant her phone was broken. The pandemic has taught us a lot, I think, as far as telehealth, technology, the haves and the have-nots. Just look at the vaccine rollouts. It all boils down to clear communication. The points are you speak in a simple language and avoid jargon, plain language. Focus on the key information needed for the visit. So what do I need to know now to get out of this room? <laughs> and I've been waiting 45 minutes now. <laughs> You're right. Listen to the patients about their needs and concerns. And sometimes that's how I usually start my visit in primary care. What's the most important thing now? What is your most pressing concern? And sometimes I would even say to the patient, what do you think you have? And then they'd pull out their sheaf of printed internet stuff and we would have to go. Make the information relevant to culture. And that's where we people are not a monolith, even though it would be so easy if it was. You really have to talk to the patient. They may be Asian American, but a Filipino Asian American who lives in San Francisco is different from a Chinese American who lives in Iowa. So we have to think about that. Simple education materials that have pictures, but again, be careful. Those, those pictures are not scary. Interpreters, language lines, language-specific information. And remember, if you're using, at least here in the Capital District, we have a lot of people who are speak Karen, but they may speak dialects that where the written information is not going to help them. And then ask the patient to share that information. What are you going to tell your wife when you go home about this mole that you came to get looked at? And the patient will say, it's fine. <laughs> I find I do a lot of pre-op ostomy counseling and I find they've already talked to the surgeon. So when I'm going to start what I think they need, I always ask them, what are you wondering about right now? Because all they want to do is see the appliance and then you start your whole spiel about everything they ever needed to know about an ostomy. They're not listening to everything they need to know about an ostomy because they want to see what the pouch looks like. I learned that a long time ago, probably from you. You have to kind of see what the patient needs and meet them where they are. Right, where they are. And I think we all learned it back in nursing school. Yeah, we just didn't call it anything official then as we do now, I think, right? Right, which kind of gives me one more thing that I forgot about teach back. So teach back, sometimes nurses think of that as return demonstration. And as WOC nurses, we do a lot of return demonstration. But teach back is more than return demonstration. And there's lots of videos out there, if you put in teach back, about how to do it. And it's really about teaching the patient and then having them tell you what they understand about it or how they, what they heard. Okay. So we almost want to be thinking about, as WOC nurses, we almost want to be thinking about teach back and a return demonstration for some of the stuff we're doing. Correct. I think that's very true. And it all takes time. Although people will say they don't have time for teach back. They've done studies and it really only takes about five minutes. 
unless you're having problem with the patient doesn't understand and then you don't want them to leave the room anyway <laughs> until at least they understand what they need to know to take care of themselves but if they can't do a return demonstration well they probably didn't understand the verbal stuff that was taught either so that's good to know before you let them out the door or let them go home from the hospital yes absolutely all right. What else is important I didn't ask you about? We have a lot of really good strategies to think about. This certainly made me think about this whole issue differently than I would have before. So I think that's good for us all to be aware of. But what else is important? People might want resources. So the AHRQ Universal Precautions Toolkit is in its second edition. So I think that's a really good resource. Rima Rudd, who is like the saint of health literacy. She's at Harvard. She's such a cool lady. Harvard School of Public Health, health literacy has lots of good information. I found a really good site. The Health Literacy Toolshed is a good one. And I was going to say, I found some really good information in, I'm going to spell it for you. P-A-C as in cat, I as in Indian, F as in Frank, I-C-U dot L-I-B guides. Dot com. And I think if you go there and you put in health literacy, you'll get their website. Excellent as far as culture and talking about that Venn diagram of culture, language, and literacy. Some really great resources with that one. In closing, I just would like to say that we can do this work. We can. And I think we do a pretty good job as far as individual education for patients, I think we make sure our patients get what they need. I do. And I do have to say, since I have this forum here, that the woundostomy continence nurses were the most wonderful group of nurses to join. Our Capital Region affiliate is filled with smart, creative, practical, boots on the ground nurses. And I'm just so proud that I'm able to say I'm a part of them. So that's my shout out to the affiliate. I think as a society, WOC Nurse Society, I think we can do better organizationally. I think we can do a lot better. We have the people power to do it. We just have to have the will and make the time. Because if we don't change what's happening on a system level, it will not get better. And as I said, 2003, Wilson Williams wrote an article for the journal assessing the readability of skincare and pressure ulcer patient materials and found in 2003 that the materials were at eighth grade level. As a society, health literacy, a prescription to end confusion was an IOM report 2004. Barry Weiss, 2005, when he developed the newest vital sign, that was when the Partnership for Clear Health Communication through Pfizer was started. 2005. What did the doctor say? 2007, the Joint Commission. There was a good article, the Ostomy Files, I think it was in the Ostomy Wound Management Journal, about ostomy-specific education for patients. And it was actually a strategy-based article, I believe. So that's something to look for. I, I'm sorry I don't have that reference here. Yeah, I think overall, we do a good job. Rima Rudd said, over the past decade, this was back in 2015, so that's what, six years ago? She said over the past decade, over 50 tools were developed to measure 
health literacy of individuals. <laughs> but scant attention was being paid to the communication skills of health professionals or to the context within which health discussions or health actions were taking place. And that's, I think, what my study showed. That's where we need to go. And I feel almost as if I've let myself down in that I haven't followed through on that call to action. As we said in the beginning of the podcast, it's an action. There has to be action behind our findings. Knowing that everybody doesn't understand us doesn't help anything. <laughs> and so we probably address it on a one-on-one -on -one basis every day. Exactly. We do. I know that we do because I know the types of nurses that become WOC nurses. We do. The thing is, we need to make it easier for the people that are coming behind us. <laughs> So they don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. This was great information and was certainly was eye-opening and makes me look at my different patient experiences in a broader way, I think. So thank you for that. Oh, and thank you so much for the opportunity. If you're interested in reading Dr. Caffaro's article, it's entitled, Nurse Practitioner's Knowledge, Experience, and Intention to Use Health Literacy Strategies in Clinical Practice in the Journal of Health Communications, Volume 18, pages 70 through 81, and that's a 2013 publication date. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode of Walk Talk. See you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Walk Talk. Please visit wocn.org slash podcast for additional details about this topic and the speakers. You can also get more information about subscribing to this podcast so you never miss an episode and to get the latest news and information from the WOCN Society. Again, that's wocn.org slash podcast. We look forward to having you join us for the next episode of Walk Talk. <laughs>